I'd like to once again welcome everyone to the services this morning. It's a great blessing to be here and to worship God with you today and to study his word together. I'm thankful to be here and thankful to see you all here. Um, this morning, I'd like to talk about uh, some, some things from the scriptures that uh, relate to a, a lot of things I do in my career. And a lot of you probably don't know what my career is or what I do, but one of the things I do a lot of is I do a lot of incident investigations. So when something goes wrong or uh, when the operation goes bad or somebody gets hurt, I'll go in and do incident investigations. Uh, and, and as I go through those investigations, I try to determine uh, why that thing happened and maybe how we could prevent that from happening in the future. Now, um, almost every single investigation that we do has one similar cause, and that cause is human error. People make mistakes, don't they? You know, we like to think that, uh, you know, people, if they're given all the tools they need and they're given the steps on how to do something and, and they know what's expected of them, then they're going to do things without fail. And, you know, in a perfect world that happens, but we know that people make mistakes, don't they? You know, a lot of these situations, maybe somebody had the procedure in their hand. Maybe they had the right tools. Maybe they had all the training they needed, but they still make a mistake. Now, um, that's not a popular thing to say to the management teams I present the findings to say, well, somebody made a mistake. So sometimes we go beyond that. But what it boils down to is, you know, we are fallible people and we make mistakes. You know, the Bible tells us that all of us make mistakes in our lives, that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. You know, God has told us how we should live. He's given us the plan. He's given us the tools. He gave his very own son to die for our sins, yet we still make mistakes, don't we? We've got all the motivation we need. We've got all the tools we need. He even gives us training. He gives us this church. He gives us a community to build us up, but we still fail, don't we? Now, this morning, I'd like to look at the scriptures and talk about uh, why we fail sometimes and talk about how we can identify when we're more likely to fail and do some things about that to keep us from failing. Uh, and I'm not going to necessarily talk about temptation this morning, and I'm not going to talk about ignorance in the scripture, but there are some things, uh, some states that we can be in where I feel uh, the scripture show uh, and just common sense shows that we're a lot more likely to make mistakes and likely to fail. So uh, another part of that job, I can't just say, hey, everybody, here's all the problems and deal with it. I also have to suggest actions and, and changes. And one of the big focuses we do is we talk about uh, coaching and training on one of the corporate buzzwords here, high reliability organization, or uh, uh, you know, get, getting rid of failure modes, things like that. And we focus on four things when we train. We talk about rushing, frustration, fatigue, and complacency. So um, I want you to think about a time maybe when you've been hurt. Can you think about a time maybe when you bumped your head or you ended up in the hospital uh, because of an injury or maybe sometimes that you cut yourself or maybe sometime you fell, something like that. Think about why you fell in that situation or how you were feeling in that situation. Now they've polled millions and millions of people about these kinds of things and they say that around 95% of people say that they had at least one of these things going on when they accidentally cut themselves, or when they accidentally trip, or when they accidentally bump their head, or something like that. And a lot of these small little errors may seem insignificant, but you can see how they can become so much worse. So I'll give you an example of, of, of a story for me. So one of the things that is uh, very frustrating for me is taking things up and down the stairs. 
at our house. You know, I think that's frustrating for anybody anyway, but let me add some multipliers here. Not only do I have to carry all these things and all these children up and down the stairs in the house, but I also have a baby gate on the stairs. I have a baby gate at the bottom of the stairs, but I also have a baby gate at the top of the stairs. I'm sure some of you have been through this before too. But it's, it's very frustrating whenever you are having to carry things up and down the stairs and you have to stop and put it down and open up the baby gate. And then you pick it back up and go through then you turn around and close the baby gate. And then you go up and you set it down and open the baby gate. And then you go through, you set it down and you close the baby gate and repeat the process over and over. You can imagine how that's pretty frustrating. And um, I remember a time whenever I was trying to carry a bunch of these tubs up the stairs, we're gonna put them in the attic and you know, the first time I go through the whole routine with the baby get, and by the time I got to the third tub, I said, you know what, we're just gonna leave the gates open and I'm gonna run up the stairs just real fast. I'm gonna go get all these tubs up here and then I'll close all the gates. I just, you know, trying to, I was kind of in a hurry. I was frustrated with that. And I thought, you know, the girls, they're getting a little bigger now. They're probably not gonna fall down the stairs. Usually they don't get on the stairs anyway because we tell them not to. So I'm sure they won't get on the stairs. Well, you can imagine where that story goes. You know, as I'm going to bring these tubs up, I look and there's a baby on the stairs. Now, thankfully, nobody fell down the stairs and thankfully nobody got hurt, but we can all see how that can turn into a bad situation very fast. And you can see that something that I knew was the right thing to do, that I've paid a lot of money for those baby gates to put them there so that no one will go up there. I put a lot of effort and time into doing that. However, I so quickly turned that away with just needing to carry tubs upstairs. And so quickly I let my rushing and my frustration and my complacency of thinking they're not gonna go up there, we've done it before, it's fine. Uh, you know, I'll let those things get in the way and I bypass all those things. Now you can think about that if you're in a, uh, a refinery or if you're in the pipeline like me, you can think about a million situations where that happens. And, and wherever you work, you can see those things. It could be as simple as hitting your knee on a filing cabinet or something like that. You know, those types of things happen and we find when we're in these states of mind that we are much more likely to do that. Now, it's not a far jump here is it to apply this to our spiritual life as well. Think about when the devil's temptation seems to be amplified in your life. Whenever you're in a hurry, whenever you're really frustrated or when you're angry, when you find yourself tired and overwhelmed, when you find yourself maybe too comfortable and just cruising around and not cautious of the devil working around us. We can find ourselves, I feel, even more susceptible to temptation when we are in these states. Not only can we get ourselves hurt physically, but when we find ourselves this way, we are in danger spiritually as well. And you don't have to look too far to see examples of this in the scriptures. When we start with rushing, I immediately think of the story of Abraham and Sarah. We think about their story and how um, they were impatient with God's plans for them. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. God promises Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. What a wonderful blessing and promise. Something to look forward to. And we might even say it's not sinful to hasten that day to look forward to the promises of God and things like that. But, you know, Abraham struggled with this, and as he and Sarah wanted to have children, but it seemed like she was barren, and they could not have children, and God had to continually encourage him. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 3, And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, 
Look now towards heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So God encourages him again. He says, just look up at the stars. See how many stars? That's going to be your descendants, Abraham. This heir is coming. You just need to wait. You need to just be patient and wait. And it says it was counted him for righteousness because he believed God and he trusted in God in that moment. However, he and his wife still were anxious. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into my maid, that I may be able to obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. Trying to speed the process along, aren't we? You know, obviously God has closed up my womb, she says. So we're going to take care of this, take my handmaid, and have Ishmael as, as he was born. And so Abraham, or Abram did that. And, you know, he was uh, about 86, the Bible says, when this happened. So 11 years after that promise, he had waited 11 years, growing impatient, they decided to take it into their own hands, and they had Ishmael. And immediately this caused problems in their family, didn't it? It says Sarai dealt harshly with her, dealt harshly with her. She got jealous when she saw that this other woman could have a son and she could not. It already stirred up strife in their life. It says that in verse uh, 4 and 6 of Genesis 16 here. Continuing in Genesis 17, verse 15, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt uh, not call her the name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? So here, God says, that was not the answer. That is not your heir. Sarah, uh, Sarai, who I'll name Sarah, because she is going to be the mother of this nation. You are going to have a son. Notice he, he just laughs at this in his heart, it says. He was actually 99 years old when he said that, so there's a little bit of drama in there. He says, a 100-year-old guy really going to have a child? And Sarah's 90 years old. Is she going to have this child? Keep in mind, this is 24 years after he had had that promise given to him. I think it would be pretty easy to get impatient over 24 years, don't you think? But he took that into his own hands, and he's got a 13-year-old son now, and God says, no, that's not your heir. Your wife will bear a child. And then Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, he continues to say, And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He says, God, we already took care of this. We already fixed this problem. Can't Ishmael be the guy? Can't he be the guy? We already had a son. And verse 9 says, And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. So he names his son here, Laughter, and names him Isaac, saying, you laughed at me, but this will come true. And he gives him a little more uh, structure. He says, you're going to have a son. It's going to come from Sarah, and his name is going to be Isaac. You're deluding yourself in your mind, saying, I've got it over here. His name's going to be Ishmael. I'm having it with Hagar. No, this is going to be your son from Sarah. His name is going to be Isaac. And he also says he's going to be born within the year. In verse 21, it says, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, with Sarah, shall bear unto thee at the set time in the next year. So he says, I have a plan, I have a time set, and that time is next year. Again, reaffirming what patience God is showing to him here. 
And then in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called on the name of his son that was born unto him, who Sarah bare to him, Isaac. So finally, when he was 100 years old, it says in verse 5 there that he was 100 years old at the time his son was born. God fulfilled that promise. But we know history and we know what happened. There's uh, definitely um, problems between Isaac and Ishmael. It stirred up problems in their family and all those things because they were not patient with the way that God had set forth. They weren't patient with the way that God wanted to do those things and it caused them problems. And God did fulfill his thing. He did fulfill his promise. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 7, says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of the thing than the beginning thereof, and the, parent, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resisteth the bosom of fool, arresteth in the bosom of fools. So here he talks about sometimes when we're feeling this oppression, when we feel um, it, uh, these, these things where we're waiting on the Lord, we feel oppressed by that. It says it can make a wise man feel crazy. It can drive you crazy. But he says it's better is the end of the thing than the beginning thereof. It just takes patience. The good things, the things promised of God are there. They're waiting, but it takes patience. Patience in spirit, it says, uh, better than the proud in spirit. It's so easy when we find ourselves rushing through things that we see pride perking up, don't we? We think, well, I know how to make this happen. I know how to make this happen faster, just like they did with Ishmael. We've got a plan. We can figure this out. That honors them, not honoring God. But what honors God is patiently waiting on him to fulfill his plan, patiently waiting on him to do the work and you to follow the guidance that he gives him. Be not hasty in spirit to be angry. So a lot of these times this shows in anger as well, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. It's foolish to try to rush past God's plan and to do our own plan. Yet we find ourselves urgently <laughs> pushing towards things that's not time for yet. Let's use this as an example to show us that we need to wait on God's timing for things. The next thing we see is frustration. When I think of frustration, I think of the story of Moses. Moses, uh, you know, he had several times of frustration in his life. He had a, a couple of outbursts of anger, you might say. However, the one I want to talk about this morning is whenever he, uh, when he struck the rock for the people. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 3, it says, And the people uh, chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have you brought us, the congregation of the Lord, into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. So the people come to him and say, we should have just died in Egypt. Why are we out here? We're wandering in the wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. Are you trying to kill us? Are you trying to lead us to despair? This is they're, they're antagonizing Moses here. They're saying, what are you doing to us? You're a terrible leader. God, he's a terrible leader. Look at where we are. We're in squalor here as they're wandering in the wilderness. You know, that had, that's not the first time that the people did this either. Um, he had been in this situation before. In Exodus chapter 17, 
this might seem familiar. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And this is years earlier. The people had the same complaint. Did you take us out here to die? We should have just stayed in Egypt. Here we are. We're all out here. We're just going to die because we have no food and water. And he says that the people were so angry at him that they were ready to stone him. So he goes to God with this problem. And in, in Exodus chapter 17, he said, Behold, I stand before thee upon the rock of Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is this the Lord among us or not? So these people were questioning Moses. I don't really believe that you're from the Lord. And he says, Don't tempt the Lord. Your God is going to provide for you. And so God tells him, Go before this rock and strike the rock, and water's going to come out of it. Water's going to come out and provide for the people. And he did that and it was a miracle and reaffirmed to the people that he was of the Lord. Now, God asked him to do something different in Numbers. So if we go back to Numbers chapter 20, let's see what God told him to do the second time around when the people were murmuring about food and water. In Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 7, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them the water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So this time, notice there's a difference. God said, I want you to speak to the rock this time. So when you go before the rock, you have your staff, you have all the people gathered around, and as you stand there, you're not going to strike the rock like you did last time, but this time you're going to speak to it. Now, people have a lot of different opinions of why God changed the idea or, or why God changed the instructions here and why God didn't say, okay, just hit it again. You know, there's a lot of things you can think about. Some, some people say that maybe the reason why God did that is because they didn't want the people to think that this was some kind of trick that Moses had mastered where he can just hit rocks and water comes out. But no, this was the work of the Lord. And the Lord said, all you have to do is speak to this rock and water will come out. Continuing in verse 10, it says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear me now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with the rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Do you sense a little bit of anger, maybe, in his tone of voice here? <laughs> the people are um, coming before him again, and he is so frustrated. He says, You rebels! Do I have to do this for you again? You're not trusting in God. You're not trusting in the guidance that we have. He's so frustrated with the people here, and he doesn't listen to the word of God. He doesn't speak to the rock, but it says he strikes it twice. So he takes his rod, and he strikes the rock twice, and God still provides the water. However, this was not without consequence. Continuing in verse 12, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. What does he say here? He says, Because you did this, 
you are not going to go to the promised land with my people. You are not going to be the one that leads them into that promised land. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that was for him after all of the things he had been through with God's people and all the rebellion and all the things that he had to go to God with for those people? He's done all this for these people and God says, because you didn't, did this wrong, because you believed me not, he says, you're not going to go to that promised land with them. What a terrible consequence. But notice what? He said, because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. He made it about himself, didn't he, in that frustration. He says, you people, look at me. See how I'm in control here. I'm the one that's frustrated. You need to listen to what I say. How often do we lash out in frustration when we see people aren't doing what we want to do? Or maybe things aren't going the way we want. Or maybe things are messing up. And we get frustrated and we take that out. You know, I think uh, that, that frustration truly amplified Moses here and made him deny the word of God. I think if he was a calm and cool-headed, he probably could have said some words and the water would have come out. But that's not what happened here. God was not sanctified before them by him following his plan and that plan working. So Moses had to pay that consequence. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight in abundance of peace. I don't think it's any accident here that they talk about inheriting the land as, as the promise. But what does he say here? First of all, he mentions some of that rushing that we already talked about, doesn't he? He says, wait patiently before the Lord, fret not yourself with the other man who's prospering in his way. How often do we do that where we are trying to do things the way that God has asked us? We're trying to live honest and good lives before God. And we see somebody else who's doing all this evil that seems to be so successful and things to be, seem to be going so good for them. Many times in God's people, that can cause frustration. He says, be patient with the ways of God. Don't look at that guy over there. Don't look at those things, but refrain from anger and forsake wrath because wrath tends only to evil, it says. If we're finding ourselves in anger and wrath, it says that tends to evil things. We find ourselves in that state. We have a tendency to do evil things. We have a tendency to sin. He says, but those evil people will be cut off and the Lord's will persevere. The Lord's will inherit. The Lord's will endure. We need to be cautious, not just rushing, but also this frustration that can rise up in us and make it easier for us to sin. The next one I want to look at is fatigue. When I think of fatigue, I think of the story of Esau. When you think about Esau and, and as he comes into the house to his brother in Genesis chapter 25, and Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came in from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? He was so overwhelmed with how hungry and tired and weary he was that he gave away his entire birthright for a bowl of soup. Now, uh, I definitely uh, understand what it means to be hangry. And I can see that even in my toddlers. If they don't have something to eat, things can get out of control pretty bad. And, and we see that. But imagine he was willing to throw away so much just because he was hungry. 
just because he was tired. And he says, well, if I don't eat right now, I'm going to be dead. And what good is a birthright to a dead man? It seems comical to us, but I imagine this was very real to him. Why would he say these things fleetingly? It was very real to him. Jacob did um, hold up this, this side of things. And Genesis chapter 25, verse 33, and Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And we can see this come through in Genesis chapter 27, verse 38. And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And after Jacob deceptively took that birthright, as Esau had given him over that bowl of soup, he goes to his father and realizes the consequences of that decision he made and the consequences of Jacob's deception. And he looks at that and he says, Father, do you really only have one blessing? Can you still bless me too? And he's so distraught here, it says he lifted up his voice and he wept. He was brought to tears over the loss of this. And I imagine he might have shed a couple of tears over the not eating that soup immediately. <laughs> Sounds like he might have been crying anyway. But he imagined the pain he was going through when he sees his birthright disappear. In verse 41, and Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will slay my brother Jacob. This decision that he made when he was hungry, this decision that he made when he was tired, had consequences for his entire family. And it caused so much anger and hate within him after the fact that he sought to, to kill his own brother. It's amazing the decisions that we make when we find ourselves tired, when we find ourselves overwhelmed, when we find ourselves hungry. Certainly, we have a tendency uh, to, to be sinful in those situations. I think of another example in the New Testament, Luke chapter 22, when Jesus was praying in the garden. And Luke chapter 22, verse 45, is when he rose up from prayer and he was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Could you imagine Jesus who gives so much, who's done so many wonderful things and all these miracles for his disciples? He asked them a simple thing. As I'm praying here in the garden, can you stay up with me? Can you pray with me? Can you be an ally and an advocate for me in this time? Can you pray with me? And Jesus is over just a short ways away and he's praying to the point that blood is dripping from his face. He's praying, let this cup not pass from me. He's praying these things intently. And as he rises up, he goes and he finds his disciples asleep. What a betrayal. And I feel like I would never make that decision. If Jesus came and asked me to stay awake for an hour, I would stay awake for an hour. But here you find his disciples overcome with sleep. They just fall asleep. And, and he says that when he saw him, he came to them and he found them sleeping. It says for sorrow. It made Jesus sad when he saw that. And he, and he says, you guys, you need to rise and pray lest you enter in temptation. If he's going to deny them, what other things could they do when they find themselves like that? We need to be extremely cautious of this, not just uh, so, so many things that our, our body can override our rational thinking, can it? And when we find ourselves in these situations, we need to be cautious. We need to not be lazy. We need to not be overcome with the needs of the world, but focused on the bigger picture and focus on the things that God desires of us. The last one that we see is complacency. And when I think of complacency, I think of the story of King David. 
And King David, you know, he had um, a lot of escalating sins in his life, didn't he? And it started with a simple decision in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when the kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. You know, this simple decision for him to stay home led to so many more terrible things in his life. You know, David was a confident king. He said, you know, why should I go out with all the other kings? And even though this is, says the time that kings would go out to war, why should I do that? Joab's capable of taking care of that. I've got everything under control. Things are going good here. And he makes a decision, I'm just going to stay home. I'm going to tarry at Jerusalem and send them out. This seems like a simple thing. Most complacency does. I've got things under control. I understand what's going on. And so I'm going to make a different decision. I'm going to do things this way instead. And so as he makes that decision, we know what happens in the next verses. And it came to pass at evening time that David arose from his, off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. So he finds himself very comfortable and confident here, not on guard at all. And as he goes out on his patio in the evening, he sees this woman and he gives in to that temptation. And that temptation leads to other acts. In verse 13, it says, And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk, and even went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. So after he impregnates this man's wife, he calls this man in, and he tries to cover it up by saying, well, I'm going to get him drunk, I'm going to bring him home, and then people will know why a baby was born. Well, uh, he didn't play along with that plan, and he lied outside with his servants. And 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14 says, And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. So it goes from being comfortable on the patio to committing adultery to trying to deceive someone to killing someone. And he goes through with this. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. See, one small act just totally spun out of control for him. And God punishes him for that. And he says, all these things that you've done to other people, I'm going to do to you. And I'm going to do it to you openly before all men. Great shame came from that. We know that David loved God. We know that David was beloved in the eyes of God, but he still made this mistake when he got too comfortable, uh, when he was confident with the way things were going, and uh, that led to all this happening as well. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29, says, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, and they have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell securely and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So this is wisdom speaking here. It says they 
denied wisdom. They've denied these things that they should be following, denied the things they should be doing, filled with their own devices. In verse 32, it says, the simple are killed by their turning away from wisdom. And it says, and the complacency of fools destroys them. You know, a lot of fools are very comfortable and confident, aren't they? A lot of fools are comfortable in their foolish ways. But he says, if you find yourself in that, in that comfortable and confident place, you know, that, that can lead to destruction. We are called to be not a people who are full of anxiety, but we are called to be a people who are full of peace, but also a people who are watchful. Can you understand the, the difference there between, um, you know, comfort and being at peace? Many times we put those things together. But God has called us to be at peace, but also to be watchful and to be focused. Just because you're watchful and you're focused doesn't mean that you're uh, uh, paranoid or you know, uh, you know, just, just so undulled with anxiety and anxiousness that you can't do anything. But being watchful and focused can be a, a real great uh, state of peace as well. And that's what God offers to us. He wants us to be focused. He wants us to be dialed in. He wants us to be watchful, but also be at peace knowing that he is behind us and his way is going to be fulfilled. Let's not get complacent when we face temptation in our lives. Our pride can rise up and turn us away from God in those moments. So when we think about these states, you know, we we see these examples in the Old Testament. uh, But the scriptures also talk about the New Testament church facing some of these issues too. And I want you to to think about those people we talked about. A lot of those people were people that were beloved, selected, and cared for by God. These were people that we know from the scriptures loved God from their hearts and sought to serve him, yet they still made mistakes when they found themselves in the situation. And that's why it's so impactful for me to think about these things personally. Because I know I want to do the right thing, I'm not trying to live in rebellion to God. I'm not trying to scorn God. I'm trying to do the right thing, but I still find myself making mistakes. I still find myself sinning against God at times, and many times in association with these things. And I'm trying to, to be better, and I, and I want all of us to be better at, a, at finding these times of temptation and when we find ourselves in weakness uh, to temptation. In Galatians chapter 6 uh, we'll read verse 1 and verse 9. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And, and verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So can you see some of those states of being in those passages there? So first of all, when he talks about um, helping your brothers out. So, you know, if you find a brother who's caught up in sin or who is struggling with sin, it says we need to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but also it says keep watch on yourself. We need to be vigilant ourselves. We need to be watchful of ourselves, lest we too be tempted. We need to have our focus dialed in, not complacent, but dialed in and focused, looking about to see that temptation, to be cautious of that temptation, to know that it can creep up on us. In verse 9, it says, let us not grow weary of doing good. When I think about someone growing weary, I think about someone who is tired of being patient and waiting for God. The Bible has so many people like that that they tell us about. And guess what? I'm that person sometimes. I get tired of waiting for the promises of God. I might try to rush through those things or I might get frustrated 
that I don't see how God is working. I don't see how God is doing his work right now. Or I might get tired of doing the right thing and saying no to temptation over and over and over. Now in this passage, when he says not grow weary of doing good, this is also used in uh, Thessalonians and that, and it could also refer to, um, you know, the giving of money to people who are spreading the gospel as well is one of the things he was talking about here uh, specifically. But certainly we see the danger of growing weary and doing good and it says, for in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. We have to persevere. We have to keep going, looking towards the goal. We have to persevere, and it will all be worth it if we can persevere. We don't need to rush that process. It's there waiting for us. We just have to patiently go through it. Now, um, we've talked about a lot of problems. We haven't talked about any solutions yet. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the solutions. So when we talk about rushing, frustration, fatigue, and complacency, we can see uh, some solutions to these things. And these are the things that I use um, at work. We can uh, change these terms in, in a more spiritual way. And certainly going to God for help, going to others for help is a big part of this. But the things that we do at work, we talk about self-triggering. So we just practice identifying, okay, if I'm rushing, I need to stop and slow down and think about what I'm doing. Identifying yourself. When am I rushing? When am I getting angry? When I'm getting frustrated? And when am I getting tired and fatigued? Okay, if, I, if I'm rushing, I need to stop. I need to slow down. I need to think about what I'm doing and, and approach it again. If I'm, uh, if I'm frustrated, I need to stop. I need to cool off. Think about what I'm doing and then proceed. And if I'm tired, I need to stop. I need to take a break, get somebody else to do it or, or help out and then we can go back to work and continue. All those things require stopping for a moment and reflecting. And that's what we're talking about with self-trigger. Take a minute to think about that, think about where you are and how you can make mistakes whenever you're riled up. So we think about the cycle that David was in where he makes one mistake and just kind of rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls. You know, whenever you're angry and you decide to throw something or you're angry and you decide to take it out on somebody else, you see how that piles up and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And those temptations that would not even be in your mind on a normal day, all of a sudden are there, they're barking at you, and you're so close to giving into those things. We need to self-trigger on those things. Another thing things we can do is analyze close calls and previous errors. So think about times when you were very tempted to sin, or you came very close to giving in and you were able to overcome. Or think about times when you did give in to sin. What kind of situation was I in? How was I feeling? What was going on? And how can I avoid doing that again in the future? Looking at close calls and errors. And this doesn't come just from our own experience, but also from those of others. The stories that we read in the scriptures this morning and every other story in the scriptures. The experiences of our fellow Christians and our friends. We can look at those examples and we can make different decisions, analyze those. The next one is observe others. Have you noticed it's a lot easier to tell when somebody else is getting frustrated than it is whenever you're getting frustrated? Or it's so much easier to tell if the driver in front of you on the road is drowsy and swerving all over the place than if you are drowsy? It's, it's kind of funny to me that we can see um, rushing, frustration, fatigue, and complacency in other people so much faster than we can see it in ourselves. We see, as we read earlier in Galatians, that's something that God understands and knows and expects us to reach out to our brethren. We need to be looking at others and identifying those things and helping them process and slow down and also use that to inform ourselves. And like, hey, if I'm with somebody and I'm like, man, this guy's really rushing through. Well, let's take a minute and look at me. Well, I'm right next to him, so I guess I am too. We find ourselves in those kind of situations often, so we can observe others. And the last one is work on habits. You know, practice doing things the right way. 
We know the right way is, we gotta practice doing things the right way and making that automatic. Gotta make doing the right thing the automatic choice, uh, the automatic uh, thing that we want to take action on. We resist rushing through things, uh, you know, we keep our cool, we, we practice resting properly, respecting the hazards that are around us. You know, uh, especially with complacency, if you've done something so many times, it's easy to forget that it's dangerous, isn't it? And uh, I think about, um, you know, Gary on the ships. I'm sure there are a lot of repetitive tasks that you do when you're on a ship. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of repetitive tasks we do at work a lot. And the first time you do that, you're scared, aren't you? You're like, oh man, look at that thing. That thing could kill me. Or that thing over there, that's real dangerous. Or I really got to watch out for that the first time you do it. Now the hundredth time and the thousandth time and the millionth time you do that thing, that doesn't even enter your mind, does it? That's complacency. We get complacency with a lot of the things we do for God, don't we? We get complacent when we do the same thing over. Maybe that thing is coming to church and we just go through the motion on things and we're not cautious. Maybe we get complacent with uh, putting ourselves in a tempting situation. Well, I've never given in before, so why would I now? And we can find ourselves in those situations, but we need to work on fighting those things away. So let's look at what Galatians said about these. First of all, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, let's read that again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. We see that self-trigger there, don't we? Keep watch on yourself. You need to watch out. You see this other guy being tempted? You need to watch yourself too, lest you be tempted as well. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, if we continue, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have some of that observing others. So we're watching others and we're being careful lest we be tempted too. But it says that we're also bearing one another's burdens in the law of Christ. We're helping others observe those actions. And then we're observing ourselves as we help them through those things in a spirit of gentleness. You know, one thing that is important to think about here, when he's talking to the church of the Galatians, they had a problem with cliques in their church, didn't they? They had a problem where, you know, there's, whether it's rich versus poor or Jew versus not Jew or whatever this versus whatever that. And whenever they saw somebody else in, they're like, oh, well, I knew he would do that because he's like this. Or I knew they would make that mistake because they're like that. We can't let ourselves get into that mindset in God's church. We are in this together. We are working together uh, and fighting these things. Continuing in verses 3 through 5, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So, you know, we've got to look at our own situations. We've got to think about... Um, you know, not deceiving ourselves in this moment, but we, we got to say, you know, I almost make mistakes too, and I've made mistakes too, and I've sinned too. We've got to analyze those things, and we need to test our own work, it says. Test your own ways. Are you doing these things in the right way? Test those things. Test your experiences. Analyze those close calls. And uh, finally, in verses 6 through 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows up his own flesh will from the flesh reap correction, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. We talk about our habits understanding that we reap what we sow. If we're going to sow good things, we're going to get good things. If we sow bad things, we're going to get bad things. Understanding that, we need to work on our habits of doing good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. 
You gotta work on sowing the right things. You gotta work on doing the good deeds and not growing weary in that. So as, as we think about the, the self-cheering, close calls, of uh, observing others and working on habits, I wanna go ahead and close with, with one more example the scripture gives us from a church. And we read that in the book of Revelation as he gives a warning to the church here. And in Revelation chapter two, verse two, it says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So as we stop there in verse three, lots of good things, right? All the things we talked about this morning, they're doing good. They're not growing weary. They're eschewing evil. They're, they're watching out for themselves. They're not letting themselves be overcome. They're doing good stuff. But in verse 4, unfortunately, we start with but. In verse 4, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it sounds like they're doing good. They, they, they haven't grown weary. They're still doing quote-unquote good things. But the problem is, is they've lost the love, haven't they? Now, how are you interpret that, whether that's love of Christ or love for our brethren or love for the church there? They lost the love. They lost the motivation. They lost the reason why they're doing all those things. So as we talk about all this stuff and avoiding errors and doing that, that's not to make us perfect, is it? That's not to make us great. The reason why we do that is because we love God and we love our fellow man and we're trying to be better. We're trying to honor God in the way we act. In Mark chapter 12, the Bible tells us the most important commandments. Uh, verse 29 says, The most commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, uh, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second of this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He says the focus of all of this is loving God and loving your brethren. Loving is the important part of this. In 1 John 4, verse 19, and I talked about this in my last sermon, we love God because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him who loves God must also love his brother. As we talk about those states this morning, I want you to think about yourself and how we can improve in those ways, but I also want you to think about God, and I also want you to think about your brother. Think about how you can help your brother be stronger using those things. But most importantly, think about how we can honor and glorify God in this life through our lives, through the testimony of our lives, the testimony of this church, and the effectiveness of the church by doing these things. It's all in our love for God. So this morning, think about yourself in your Christian walk. I know we all commit sin, don't we? The Bible tells us that I commit sin, I fall short. But I encourage you to think about those things. Self-trigger whenever you find yourself rushing, when you get frustrated or when you're tired, all those things. Think about those situations and eschew evil. Think about the danger that you're in and how the devil is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's out there, he's watching, and he's not looking for the strongest, he's looking for the time of weakness. He's looking for the time when you're lagging and he's going to strike. We need to know that we have the victory, we have peace of mind, knowing that God stands for us, but we still need to be walking around circumspectly. We still need to be looking around and cautious. I encourage you to be cautious. I encourage you to not get complacent with your actions. 
Hopefully these things have been helpful to you this morning in identifying when we're more likely to give in to temptation, when we're more likely to give in to sin. I know it's helpful for me to think about these things, and I hope it's been encouraging to you as well. If you find yourself this morning struggling to do those things, I'd be happy to invite you to come forward to pray with your brethren here that God could be glorified, that we could, out of love, live our lives better for him. And if you find yourself not yet a child of God, I hope you can see what the devil is doing out there. It doesn't take long to see what the devil is doing, but it doesn't take long to see what God is doing either. And God is doing wonderful things, and he provides so much for his children. So if you find yourself in either case, please come forward as we sing the song of invitation.